Yes, Natasha. Um, I was out playing cricket on the Oval at the time and we noticed these three craft hovering above the school, um, which was a bit unusual. They were definitely weren't aircraft. And then after about 10 minutes, we saw one go down into an area behind our school called the Grange, where we used to do our cross-country runs. So being a little bit of a rebel, as I was at school, um, I was one of the first to run through and jump over the fence and arrive at the Grange, and it was on the ground in front of me. The other two girls had arrived before me, and one was hysterical, Tanya, and the other girl had fainted. So I just looked at it, and after a few minutes, it just raised up above me, probably to about well, 12 feet, turned on its side, and went zoom straight up into the air and disappeared almost instantly. This is the Paranormal Search radio show and podcast. Discussing unexplainable events that shape our extraordinary world. Preston Dennett began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986 when he discovered that his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. Since then, uh, he has interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He is a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, a ghost hunter, a paranormal researcher, and he's the author of many books and more than 100 articles on UFOs and the paranormal. His articles have appeared in numerous magazines, and his writing has been translated into several different languages. He has appeared on numerous radio and television programs. His research has been presented in many newspapers. He has taught classes on various paranormal subjects, and he lectures across the United States. Let us please welcome Preston Dennett. Preston, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah. And uh, we've had a couple questions. Uh, I had one question for you. Uh, you said you wrote more than 30 books last time I spoke with you. Yeah, I'm just about there. Uh, 27 is the actual account, but I should have two coming out this year. Okay, great. So, yeah, and, right uh, close to the You had a pretty good uh, background there, but tell us more about your background. Uh, when did you first develop an interest in UFOs other than... The yeah, I grew up skeptical of UFOs. Did not believe in them, not one bit. And uh, heard a report on the news. I remember vividly, this was mid-November 1986, about a sighting over Alaska. And uh, it was a pretty major sighting, but the newscasters just kind of laughed about it and moved on to the next story. But it interested me enough to start asking people I knew, my family, my friends, my co-workers, what they thought about UFOs. And I got real bad news. I mean, this was not good news for me when I found out that my brother had seen a UFO, uh, my sister-in-law, people at work, uh, friends, they all had witnesses with them. Uh, it wasn't just them telling me, you know, they saw something alone. So this caused a major shift in my worldview. Uh, like I said, it was not good news. It was like being hit by a ton of bricks, really. Shifted me into high gear to try and find out what is going on here. What was the very first uh, book you ever wrote on this uh, as time went on? And when, how old were you when you wrote your first book? Uh, yeah, well, 1986 is when I started, you know, looking at the UFOs. I was a very young man, 21 years old, and uh, became a MUFON uh, field investigator. Pretty soon on, I joined all the UFO groups, bought all the books I could find, uh, subscribed to all the journals. Uh, and really started digging in uh, and uh, interviewing people. And let's see, I my first book was published in 1996, so I had been researching for about 10 years before I wrote my first book. Was that uh, Not From Here, Volumes 1 and 2, or just Volume 1? Or, or, um... Um, 
No, no, those came quite a bit later. They came later. Uh, yeah, the Not From Your Sock series is pretty new. There's three of them so far. I'm going to put out another one, hopefully this year. Uh, but it, no, the first book, I think, was uh, UFO Healings, which covered 100 cases of people who got a physiological improvement as a result of the UFO encounter. So that was the first one. The second one was 1 in 40, followed by UFOs over Topanga Canyon. Mm. After that, I started, I just didn't look back after that, yeah. So you've, you've done quite a few, uh, quite a bit of research, and you've probably talked to thousands of people in, on this on this subject uh, of schools. Was uh, When you first started writing these, these books, um, and you researched all this, what would you say to, what would be the strangest cases you've ever researched? Uh, well, initially, I, I thought they were all really strange. Uh, cause, <laughs> but, you know, that's a, that's a question I'm often asked. Uh, and there are some sort of weird outline cases. Uh, let's see, one one that comes to mind is a, a lady I've interviewed who is a counselor and a real estate agent. You know, good witness. Uh, professional. And she describes a really amazing encounter she had while driving riding her motorcycle through the Wachang Mountains in New Jersey. Mm. Late at night, an isolated road, and she crashed her motorcycle and bent up the Kickstarter. So she was, she herself was okay, but the motorcycle, she couldn't start it. She was bending there on a pretty uh, remote road in the middle of the night. She wasn't sure what she was going to do when these figures just showed up out of nowhere. She never saw a UFO. She saw I think, what people would no, as hybrids. They looked very much like greys, large, dark eyes, and bald, but actually looked very human-looking. Uh, she couldn't tell whether they were wearing jumpsuits or not, uh, but they just walked right up to her motorcycle, picked it up, and uh, went and bent down and started fixing it. She didn't see any tools or anything in their hands. Uh, she stood back because it was pretty shocking. Um, these guys clearly weren't human. And it uh, took just a few moments. They stepped back and motioned her to get on the motorcycle, which she did. The Kickstarter was now fine. And uh, she started that motorcycle and just sped off. She said she never looked back. What did uh, Mrs. Johnson have to play in this with a reptilian creature? How did that come to play in the, uh, the book? Um, well, this is interesting because that was at a time when there was a, a wave of sightings of, quote, little green men. Mm -hmm. uh, not far away from the Hopkinsville, Kentucky case, mm -hmm. uh, which occurred really around the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that Evansville High School. Uh, it's a weird case. Uh, there was a group of teenagers who saw these little green men uh, on the high school athletic field. And this is how it usually goes down in these cases. It's right really? over the playground or the, you know, the school field up there and uh, this was at night which is uh, probably the exception most of these cases take place during the day usually while kids are at recess or at lunch uh, so yeah this group of kids saw these I believe there was uh, a, a group of them uh, and they were just very short four feet tall webbed hands uh, they were glowing green and just running around the schoolyard and uh, it would be the kind of setting I might dismiss. <laughs> so I actually don't have a whole lot of information on it that I, I wasn't able to locate. But what I was able to locate was other cases in that same area around the same time. So that, I think, provides a level of corroboration. Well, and before they had the, uh, uh, the schoolyard sighting, they had UFOs the day before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Often these schoolyard sightings are not isolated cases. Mm -mm. Sometimes they seem to be, but in many cases, like probably the most famous case at Rua, uh, Zimbabwe, the Aerial Elementary School. And yeah, that one's the yeah, most strangest case I've ever heard in, in many years. Yeah, and I thought it was an isolated case. That was one case I knew about before I'd written the book, but I kept running into more. Right. More I did cases. too. I did too until Ross... Uh, he heard an interview with you on another famous uh, radio show, and that's how Ross found out about the book. We had no idea there were so many 
school cases with these things. And Preston, in your opinion, um, why do you think that they're visiting schools? Uh, well, I've certainly thought about this for a long time because uh, one thing, I, this is kind of a unique behavior for UFOs. Absolutely. Right? I mean, normally yeah. they're very evasive. You can't just go outside and see a UFO anytime you want, certainly. But in some cases, they do put on displays as if they want to be seen. I would point to the Phoenix Lights or various waves like Gulf Breeze, Hudson Valley Wave. Uh, so they do sometimes like seem to want to show themselves. I think that's what's happening here. They're specifically targeting schools. This is not like a random flyby where you know, people are outside and maybe they see a UFO. Yes. And I say that because these things approach from above or the distance and come right down over the school, usually at very low levels. I mean, we're talking a couple of hundred feet. Uh, often lower, and like I said, 30% of the cases are actually landing next to the school. Humanoids are seen. Mm-hmm. Another thing that makes these cases unique is there's a large group of witnesses there. Uh, yes, mostly children, uh, but more than half the cases involve adult teachers as well. I think they're not afraid of children as much as they would of adults. Yeah, I think that you hit on it exactly. I think there's you know, a lot of these Children have never even heard of UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might argue that children aren't great witnesses because they're, you know, impressionable, and imaginative. And they're more likely easier to deal with with the aliens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, some there are no prejudices at all you know, against someone who might look different. Mm-hmm. So my theory is that they, these UFOs, the UFO occupants, are coming down and announcing their presence to a large group of people in a way that will sort of slide under the radar uh, because kid, kids aren't really often believed uh, they're not taken seriously and yet they're very impressionable they're very you know, they're, they soak up knowledge like a sponge and in many of these cases these child witnesses say this encounter that they had as a kid is something that deeply impressed them, something they think about daily, something they remember for the rest of their lives. Sometimes it actually transforms their life. They become UFO researchers or scientists or involved in the UFO field in some capacity. So it's definitely having a huge effect on them. I think the ETs are just trying to convince people of their presence, their reality. And that's been very effective. I think the Do you remember now, researcher Catherine Hine? Kathleen. Oh, yeah, Cynthia Hyatt. Yeah. Yes, Cynthia, I'm sorry. <laughs> she uh, wrote, One cannot help feeling that perhaps the children of Ariel uh, were chosen for some special mission and the UFO encounter, its effect are still being felt today. We yeah. Think- What's interesting about the aerial cases, uh, ETs were seen. Uh, UFO occupants came out and actually communicated with uh, several of the children who all got very similar messages involving uh, the destruction of our environment, yeah. and pollution, and technology, and this sort of thing. And uh, some of them continued to have encounters, which does happen in some of these cases. Uh, so. Oh, a simple playground sighting can lead to sort of a lifetime, lifelong experience with these guys. And uh, messages, getting messages are, are not super common in these cases. Uh, but what I find interesting about the aerial cases, the messages the children got to the same messages adults are getting when they're taken on board a craft. Yeah, that was very similar. They're told about cataclysmic events and everything. Exactly. Yeah. And for the listeners out there, uh, what we're discussing, we're talking about the Ruwa Zimbabwe case that I believe happened September 1994. Uh, for those of you out there listening and, and not sure what we're discussing, you might want to look that up on the internet. Uh, Ruwa, R-U-W-A, uh, Zimbabwe happened at the Aerial School, September 1994. Very interesting case. Yeah, I honestly thought it was unique, but it sure isn't. 
Is that uh, school still around? You know, I don't know. I, I honestly could not answer that Could question. Oh. Uh, okay, yeah, says it was. Actually, they were, because at the end of the special we were watching, they visited it, uh, the children, they had all the children as adults come back, and they interviewed them again as adults. And a lot of them still have the same stories. In fact, one of the teachers is now a headmistress, and she said she wished she would have believed the children back at the time they seen these. She feels bad about uh, not believing them at the time. Yep, yep. I quite unfortunate. That's what happened in the Broadhaven uh, Elementary School in Wales in 1977. There was 12 to 16 students who saw this UFO land, and occupant came out. Uh, they ran back to tell the teachers and weren't believed until uh, they were separated, and each of them drew what they had seen. Yeah, there was an incident. I think and I think it was in Florida. It has a really strange Indian Native American name, something Florida. I can't remember. Oh uh, yeah, I know what. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that that's another famous one, where the kids are running outside, and then the uh, the UFO was just hovering a few feet off the ground, and the kids were running out, and the teacher kept trying to get them back inside, and they kept looking out the window, because they would appear and yeah. disappear. Yeah, two hundred yeah. students, uh, by the way, and, we, and yeah. the teacher did leave statements. Uh, this was a incident that did occur actually over a period of two days. It was Exactly one year after a very famous incident in Australia, by the way. But the Crestview Elementary School, what you're talking about here, April 1967, Opelaka, Florida. That's it. And uh, 200 students saw this and teachers. These objects came right down, uh, apparently landed at one point. There was multiple objects, silver. They were darting around, blinking, disappearing, reappearing. And uh, it just... Actually, what happened was the military showed up, and uh, this is this happens periodically in these cases. Yeah, I'm surprised and, the the military didn't seem to be very involved in the Zimbabwe case. I haven't heard. The only strange thing about that case was the uh, the psychiatrist uh, Mackey. Yeah, the one who was, yeah, John Mack. He was supposedly that's it. He was supposedly hit by a drunk driver in Africa after the, he interviewed these kids. London was it London? London. Oh, London. I'm sorry, London. And uh, that sounded kind of a little off. Like, uh, it just, just so happens he got hit by a drunk driver after he, he did all these interviews with these children and they were talking about the UFOs and everything. But uh, there haven't been any real strange men in black stories or anything about that particular case or, or anything about military men coming after anybody to keep their mouth shut. Um, maybe you can share something maybe I don't, I, we don't know about here. It wasn't documented or I don't know. Yeah, as far as the aerial case, no, yeah. there does not appear to be government involvement, but it certainly does happen. I yes, remember there was a case at Jerome Elementary School, I believe it was. No, wait, let me think. I'm thinking of another one. Uh, Sacred Heart Elementary School, uh, where uh, one of the witnesses there was a police officer and had a camera that actually able to film this object as it moved away. It had been hovering over the schoolyard there. And uh, he uh, did get some visits from government agents who were very interested in this footage. Mm. And whenever you get physical evidence, uh, that's when the government guys or the men in black show up. Well, here in uh, Pennsylvania, we had a very interesting case that you put in your book, People's Elementary School. And that would be on page 155. That was a good one. Yeah, that was a very strange one. Um, I remember that one. Uh, what's interesting about that one is that relies on a single witness who uh, was with her girlfriend, and the janitor called them over and took them downstairs, and apparently there was this UFO that he had covered, and uh, he was able to somehow, or it appeared uh, down in the basement of this school. And uh, what's really interesting is the witness did provide a drawing and a description of everything that happened. And uh, there was a gray ET there. And uh, her friend that she was with fell unconscious. Just does not remember uh, seeing uh, this happen. 
not. But uh, let me see, that was May 1967. Yep. And uh, the gray ET gave her a message and said, we are here to remind you who you are. And she has no idea what that means. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely a very peculiar case. And not like most of the cases, I think, that uh, are in this book. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, honestly. But Neither am I. <coughs> I don't know what he meant by that. Yeah, yeah, neither does she. I think she would like to know. Uh, it's Occasionally they do give messages. Uh, there was one lady I interviewed. I met her contact in the desert at a UFO conference. And uh, we started talking. And uh, she talked about how she had had an encounter at... Uh, elementary school in Mentor, Ohio. This was in October 1964. She was 11 years old. And she and her friends saw this silver object just drop down out of the sky and land in the grove of trees next to the school, which is what they always do. And uh, she said she got a message, a mental uh, message that was very clear that said, remember this day. And then this thing just shot off like a bullet. And we never talked about it after that. Sometimes this does become the buzz of the school. Sometimes it's just not discussed at all. Hmm. That seems to be what happened in this case. But she did remember it. I think this points towards their agenda again of trying to convince people, kids, of their presence. Have you had any other cases lately? Uh, I've still been contacted. I was contacted by a guy in England who, you know, this case is not in the book, and he said he had an encounter, uh, I forget exactly where it was in England, uh, but I have it in my notes, and uh, he says he was out on the playground early morning uh, when everyone's all playing stopped, and everyone looked up, this, what he thought was a plane at first, except it had no wings, and it had a porthole, and you could see someone looking out, and uh, it was just hovering there. Everyone stopped and looked up at it. It stayed there for just a few moments and then darted off. Uh, so, again, I think these ETs are showing themselves on purpose. I really do. You know what I heard uh, years ago that, not how true this is, but it came from another investigator, that from what information he was gathering, that the Aliens are mad at our government for not letting them know they exist. Have you ever heard that statement? Yes. Yes, apparently um, there are rumors that ETs have approached our government. Uh, like the, Supposedly there was a meeting in 1954 at Edwards Air Force Base with President Eisenhower and ETs, which sounds crazy, but if you look into this story, there's quite a bit of corroboration for it. Many researchers are taking it quite seriously. And the ETs uh, asked us to disclose, and our government did not want to do it for fear of upsetting the economy and religion and, you know, society in general. Uh, so I think what the ETs are doing is sort of a grassroots movement and showing themselves to individuals, small groups of people, and sometimes large groups of people when you know, they can sort of get away with it. I mean, for example, this case uh, was probably the most widely viewed that I could find regarding schoolyard encounters, and it occurred on May 17, 1970 at Richmond School. Uh, this was in Maranui, New Zealand, and there was 400 students out on the playground. Suddenly, the teachers who were supervising noticed that nobody was playing. It was perfectly silent, and they look up, and there's this huge black object approaching the school, and it comes and hovers overhead covering a good portion of the sky. It's totally silent. Got a kind of silvery, glistening surface. And uh, everyone's just staring up at it for a good five or ten minutes, at least. At which point it kind of turned up on its side and darted away. So this is clearly sort of brazen behavior. It's like they're putting on a publicity campaign. Is what I think they're doing. We're here. We're here. Are you ever going to do a uh, another follow-up book on this kind of thing? Uh, 
I might. I might if I get enough new cases. Um, I also know of another case that isn't in the book, uh, which was forwarded to me by another researcher, and it occurred around the same time as the Rua Zimbabwe case in 1994, but was in uh, Colombia, South America. Uh, by the way, these cases are in Canada, all across the U.S., uh, many in, in Me- I mean, there's Mexico, Central America, South America, Africa, of course. Uh, there's cases in uh, Spain, uh, several in England, and all, there's uh, several in Australia, like the New Zealand case as well. This is all over the world. Uh, so, yeah, I'm guessing I'm going to get a lot more cases, uh, but one occurred in Bogota, Colombia, I believe it was, or somewhere in Colombia, at an elementary school, and was very much like the Ruiz and Babway case. Uh, the main teacher who's sort of been interviewed about this is very reluctant to have her name known, or and has been very shy about being interviewed. But uh, Ray Hernandez was able to get an interview from her, and she described how this craft landed next to the school, EPs came out, and uh, many of the children and some of the teachers all saw this, but as often happens, it was kept quiet. Well, those two uh, girls we've heard a lot about on shows. They've been on TV when they were young. We were just watching them. Uh, Salma Siddiq and Lucille Field. Yeah. Um, they seem to be the big uh, speakers for that school for the children. Yeah. 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 Can you imagine? There was quite a number of people at that school who saw this. I believe there was like 200 children on the playground. At least 60 saw the craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there, I'm guessing there are a lot of people out there who aren't talking and that the 100 cases I found in the book, really, you know, that I put in the book, uh, really represents just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, this um, seems to be like a small percentage, like you said. Um, it's like almost like they won't be believed or something. Or they keep. Do you still have contact with them? Uh, some, I, uh, many of these, most of these cases, I wasn't able to interview the witnesses firsthand. I was able to find, track down a few myself personally, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I did try to reach out to some of the uh, Rua Zimbabwe witnesses, but uh, wasn't able to talk to them. One lady I was able to talk to, uh, her name is Melody, Melody Korn, from St. Louis, Missouri. She and her friends had a really incredible encounter at Point Elementary School in St. Louis, which is still there. Um, Yeah, that's that's in the book, too. Yeah, Yeah. March 1966. It's an amazing case. She she and uh, I think it was five other friends decided they were just going to break away from the main playground there and go to the other side of the field and uh, play tag. And they looked down and they saw these weird footprints uh, in the sand there on the ground. And they were trying to figure out what they were because they were clearly bipedal, uh, but they didn't look like anything that they could, you know, think of. And uh, that's when they noticed this light off in the trees. And their first thought was ice cream truck. Uh, you know, they're little kids. And uh, it was against the rules to go off school boundaries, but they were very curious and excited, and so they just went off and ran into the trees there and saw that this wasn't an ice cream truck at all. This was a craft of some kind, landed on the ground, and had little landing legs, uh, had a bright light on top. She doesn't remember if there was any portholes or not. And her attention and her, her friend's attention was drawn away from the craft to this short figure standing actually quite close to them. Hmm. And uh, it wasn't human. It had very uh, big eyes, uh, and its face, she said, looked very strange, almost like a gorilla or something. And it looked very muscular. It was wearing some type of jumpsuit. And it was just staring right at them, staring them down. And as soon as they approached, they stopped. They were standing there in a row, and this thing just backed up and went into the craft. And at that point, the teacher approached, and uh, she started ushering all the 
children back into the school, and uh, Melody was in the classroom with all her uh, classmates, and they were all rushing to the window and looking for this thing, because now it had the attention of all the kids. And they couldn't see the entity anymore, but they could still see this craft. And uh, all the kids were ushered out of the classrooms and into the gymnasium, and they cut school short, or closed the school down, which happens in some of these cases. Wow. And uh, we're getting ready to send the children home when one of them shouted out, there it goes! <laughs> now the gymnasium did have windows, but they were pretty high up. And uh, one of the kids said he saw it dart away. And uh, Another interesting that, thing that you had written that I can't find a book, it's not in the uh, uh, the UFO Encounters book, is UFOs over drive-in movies. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Right? That's kind of, in a weird way, a follow-up to this book. So I started looking for other areas that are what I would call UFO attractors. Uh, because it's clear to me that UFOs are targeting schools. I'm wondering, well, what else are they targeting? <laughs> Is there any other encounters like this? So maybe, I started looking at maybe sporting they wanted, event. Maybe wanted to watch a free movie, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the fact is, they are targeting drive-in theaters. Uh, these are yeah. not random flybys again they're coming down right over the movie screen right next to it wow and uh it's not just once or twice i found over 100 cases just got another one literally yesterday <laughs> i am telling you this is a thing i had no idea even though i had run across several cases and investigated one myself do you think it could be uh, i'm sorry to interrupt but do you think it could be because they're curious as what the heck we're staring at in this big screen yeah, that was my first theory. <laughs> well, you know, these are very provocative images. It's a huge screen. It's a bright beam of light. You can see this thing from outer space. And I'm right? wondering, right. I, I always thought, um, these guys must be really curious about us as much as we are about them. I wonder what they think about our holidays, our movies, our entertainment, uh, you know, our, our economic system, and the children, of course, if they think they're little adults. And maybe that's why they're confronting them in schools and everything. And there's so many things about, I think, us, I think, that intrigues them as much as we intrigue, as, you know, as they intrigue us. Yeah, um, I agree. They seem to be very interested in all things human, all things earth. Yeah. They've been seen collecting plants of all kinds, flowers, animals, for that matter. Uh, you know, rabbits, pigs, cows, you name it. A case involving alligators. So they are collecting pretty much all the flora and fauna on our planet and certainly I take the people on board as well and not just a few a lot uh, you know people used to think abductions were relatively rare but surveys show that I mean, there was the Roper poll the Roper organization is a prominent survey organization and they did a survey on UFO abductions and found that one in 50 people uh, showed the markers of having or being a UFO abductee. Have you ever researched a case where the children were abducted and were brought back or not brought back at all? Yeah, actually I have. Uh, in terms of uh, children being abducted, if someone claims to have had contact, you know, in a, as an adult, it's one of the first questions I ask them is like, have you had any experiences as a child? Mm. And as a general rule, uh, people are being taken on board a UFO, it occurs starting in early childhood, anywhere from age four to seven, 12, maybe in some cases. Wow. Uh, this is something children are facing often alone without any information and sometimes without the support of their parents who don't believe in, like, oh, you're just having a nightmare. Uh, hmm. but, yeah, okay, usually people are returned as far as, far as we can tell. Uh, but there are a few cases. No, people are not brought back. Oh my God, that's. I wonder why that is. Any thoughts on that? Why they're not brought back at all? Uh, well, I think you know, it's hard to say whether this is a hostile act or not. I think in some cases it is. There was a very well-known case that took place in Australia to a young pilot by the name of Frederick Valentich. Oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, hearing about that, yeah. Right? He had a UFO mm. hovering over him. He was in touch with the control tower. And he's describing it. 
and it wasn't the plane, and next thing they know, he's gone and never seen from again. I wonder sometimes if stories like this are a matter of choice between the abductees or the experiencers, whatever they call them these days. Um, yeah, I think so, be, I do yeah. investigate one case personally, um, where a group of young men were out in the Palm Springs area, um, just at a cabin in a remote area, and one of them wandered off to take a hike. He came back and said he had come upon a landed flying saucer. And I was like, you're kidding, you're joking. He's like, no, I'm totally serious. <laughs> he described this incredible encounter. He said that there was uh, three or four of these gray-type figures, or kind of like grays, but actually very much human-looking. Uh, he was invited on board. He said it was a very friendly experience. That it was very clean inside. It was a white, round, rounded room. Everything was white. Uh, creatures wore white jumpsuits. And uh, they just told him that they were studying this area. And uh, that if he wanted to, he could come with them. And he declined. He said, no, I, I don't I don't want to. And they said, well, we're going to come back here uh, next year on this day. And if you want to come, uh, you're welcome to come. Wow. This was the story he told his friends. Hmm. And, and, uh, so, not, yeah, it seems that not all of these confrontations are hostile. Oh, yeah. Ones, no, by no means. Some of them are uh, almost like, uh, they're, uh, uh, what's, uh, edification purposes. Yeah, the world's going to be, just like with the, the children of Ruwa and other such cases where they were trying to tell the individuals, children or adults, about some of the things that might happen if we don't soon, uh, you know, get our act together yeah. on this yeah, planet. That's the number one message, for sure. Yeah. People, people are taken on board. Probably the most likely thing to happen is being physically examined, uh, which can be very scary, especially if you're, you know, I don't know, <laughs> never heard of anything like this. And uh, People yeah. have a strong fear reaction to the unknown, <clears throat> uh, but some don't react with a lot of fear. And they're treated differently. They aren't, like, perhaps paralyzed. Instead, are hmm. taken to the engine room and shown how it works. Well, um, or, and that's not unusual, I have to tell you. Um, I've run across that fairly regularly. And many people are given messages of various kinds, which usually relate to the environment. Um, yeah. the warnings against nuclear proliferation are very common. Um, advice on moving away from fossil fuels finding alternative energy sources. That's another theme that certainly is brought up again and again. Um, healing, uh, spiritual issues, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, that's also very common. You talk about the healing power of UFOs? Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the first things I started looking to, looking into when I became a researcher because uh, I had interviewed this lady who was diagnosed with a cyst in her fallopian tubes and uh, had to get it removed and uh, it was causing all kinds of problems. And the night before surgery, she had an encounter and she went to the hospital the next day to have surgery and the doctors were like, well, we can't find your cyst. Uh, it's not showing up on the imaging. What happened? And she, she denied that anything happened and they said, well, we think you had surgery because there's fluid here in your... Uh, Fallopian tube, which is only present after you've had surgery. Hmm. And she, of course, denied it, uh, but her, her uh, cyst was gone. And uh, I knew that there were other healing cases in the literature. I didn't think there were many, but I knew of a couple of famous cases. There was oh, a police yeah. officer in Texas who was struck by a beam of light. He was healed. But Dr. France, he was healed of a back swelling on his foot, also being struck by a beam of light. So yeah, that's how I started giving look, looking into this. Now, today, I've documented some 300 cases of people who had a physiological improvement as a result of the UFO encounter. Yeah, Ross, uh, I was trying to get Ross to uh, remember, there was a story about a guy who smoked a lot, and he was abducted by UFOs. And I don't remember the whole thing, but you told me that the, the aliens gave him a box full of a vial of, uh, they were like um, test tubes full of this black, noxious liquid that came out of his lungs they practically cured oh, him oh yeah. yeah i remember so yeah. that's one of the one of the curing things uh, things i've heard about too but that amazes me how the, how they do they cure some people and others uh, they primarily 
maybe cause them more problems, psychological or physical? Yeah. yeah. It's all very hard to figure out because people are left with mental trauma and in some cases, you know, they are physically damaged. They do have injuries. Uh, one guy I uh, interviewed, he has had encounters his whole life. He recently passed away, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as a child, he woke up one morning and his eyes were severely burned. And they had to rush into the hospital. And they're like, well, did you look at a welder's light? You know, what did you do last night? And he had no explanation for how his eyes could have gotten burned. And this happened twice. And as an adult, he was having missing time and, you know, all kinds of the close-up UFO sightings and started coming back with puncture wounds once his foot was broken. But at one point, he was diagnosed with uh, cancer and it was a tumor on his neck and it was getting larger. And I said, he was, had that surgery and uh, was scheduled for surgery and about a week before surgery, he had an encounter, woke up the next morning and the tumor was gone. He went to the doctor anyway. The doctors were amazed. Wow. He, had, he was very um, upfront with them. He's like, I'm having encounters with ETs. Uh, and uh, the, they were like, wow, you know. They, so they Sometimes did surgery. Sometimes wonder what hospital they worked out of. Um, yeah, he gave me the name of the hospital. He sent me his medical records. Um, this was <laughs> a cancer hospital in Canada. And uh, they... Uh, did surgery anyway, and they couldn't find any cancer, but they had to remove some necrotic tissue. Wow, they that's wrote, really crazy. Wow. Yeah. They wrote, they didn't write, oh, well, cured by ET. They just put, uh, what did they do? Unexplained uh, remission. Yeah, or that sounds about right. <laughs> it's unexplained, all right. Do you think some of the <laughs> things that happen to these uh, abductees or experiencers or uh, whatever, do you think that some of the injuries they they actually uh, encounter might just be accidental, that the aliens really didn't want to hurt them. They just didn't realize maybe they were generating too much radioactivity on the ship or something, or I don't think a lot of these are intentional. Do you? These injuries? Uh, yeah. no, no, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah I mean, there was another case, Sergeant Charles Moody. It's a fair, fairly well-known abduction uh, case in the literature. And he fought these guys as they were taking them on board, and as a result, injured his back. The first thing they did when they got him on board is lay him down and healed his back. And uh, he ended up getting over his fear and was actually treated very civilly. They showed him the engine room. They gave him all kinds of information so they'd contact him again, told him they had bases. I believe it was on Earth. I'd have to look that up. Uh, but yeah, it's a very interesting case and speaks to exactly what you're talking about. I don't think they're trying to hurt people. I really don't think that's their agenda at all. I don't get any reports of what I would call just over sadism or then trying to torture people and you know, having fun with that. No. The worst I get is people have a painful examination and sometimes the usually grays, gray type DPs, don't seem to show a whole lot of compassion. Uh, that's not always the case. Often they do and will relieve your pain or just put you unconscious. Yeah, I know there there are certain races that don't have any compassion for the humans when they they just throw them down on the tables, they probe them, they do whatever, and the patients are, you know, the the experiences are screaming at the top of their lungs and they're not even taking that into consideration. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to this guy I interviewed. I call him Gary. He doesn't want his real name used. Well, but he, he had a does not like the grade, I can tell you that. He's had some painful examinations with them. Of all the of all the schools, uh, the schools uh, issues that you've researched and the ones with the on the drive in theaters and so forth, have you ever heard of a child that was hurt or maybe even killed in when they were confronted by these aliens? No. No? Well that's good, I, I guess. I, yeah. Yeah, no. In most of these cases the children uh, don't react with fear. There's a few cases where it does cause a little bit of a panic, uh, for sure. Uh, but generally speaking, no. No, in no cases of kids being injured that I could find. Well, that's uh, good. Because I think yeah. I think they have a natural compassion. I don't hear any stories about children being hurt or maimed. 
or killed by the aliens. It always seems to be adults. Maybe it depends on how difficult they become on the ships. I don't know. But yeah, I never really heard of a story. But I don't know a lot about, uh, like I didn't even know a lot of children were facing some of the things that you wrote about. And uh, and drive-in theaters, that really makes me laugh. Because I'm picturing this UFO stand, sitting in front of this big screen and watching a film with everybody else. Trying mm-hmm. to figure out what is going on, you know. Yeah, actually, I think they're just showing themselves off. I thought maybe they're there to watch the movie, but no, are. I don't think so. They're missing out on the concession stand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby, and they're all running out to the lobby. <laughs> well, in your book, you also have something that's interesting to me, is Bigfoot, the Yeti, and other ape men. Um, I had an encounter with a Bigfoot myself. And... I've also been thinking and thinking and investigating these things. Uh, I have guys that do investigations for us. What's your take on this? Uh, Yeah, I have looked into Bigfoot. I didn't want to, but I ran into a UFO case that actually involved Bigfoot. Uh, Some guy had a UFO land in his backyard, and the very next night, a Bigfoot showed up. I started looking into it, and Bigfoot... Uh, I, had a, I suspected it was probably real because I had, by that point, heard many reports. But formally looking into it, yeah, I was pretty much shocked to see the amount of evidence there is. Uh, I think it's conclusive in the public arena. If someone objectively examines the evidence, I think they will come away convinced uh, because it's overwhelming. I mean, it's all across the United States and the world. Uh, cases stretch back over 100 years. Pennsylvania has a huge number of cases. Uh, it's one of the leading uh, producers of Bigfoot reports. California is actually first. Uh, Washington and Oregon are also very strong. But yeah, it's all, all across the United States and the world. Um, goes by different names locally. Uh, but people describe the same sort of thing. An unknown primate. Did you ever hear uh, of any in the Harrisburg area? That's where we're from, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Oh. Oh, if I, I'm sure if I looked it up, there would be cases. Yeah, because Pennsylvania's got a, a lot of activity. Do you believe there might be any correlation between uh, um, earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, and especially earthquakes that might have something to do with uh, aliens or underground aliens or bases or anything like that, or giant machines that dig tunnels through the earth? We're always discovering these new tunnels and sinkholes appearing out of nowhere. Do you think that might be related to aliens or anything, or a conspiracy uh, with the no. government or anything? As far as ETs, uh, yeah. the ET earthquake connection, people have tried to look into that because there are earth lights, which can appear during earthquakes. Lights will come out of the ground just in seismic pressure. Uh, I actually did see that during the Northridge earthquake, uh, sheets of light coming out of the ground behind my house. Oh, wow. Insane, but... Uh, and people have tried to link that to UFOs, but I'm going to say no, that's not linked. Uh, I think there are some cases where people will have sightings around the times of earthquakes. I guess that ETs have the ability to sort of predict them and sense the energies before, you know, it snaps. So perhaps that's the connection. Uh, but I'm guessing we have more to do with earthquakes than the ETs due to, you know, things like, uh, Oil drilling and fracking. Oh, okay. Yeah. This definitely would link to earthquakes. That may have something to do with a lot of the tsunamis and stuff, too. Maybe it's the earth fighting back. It doesn't want us to, to hurt it any longer. It's, it's, the earth itself is, it has been described as a kind of a living thing. And it's retaliating. We're like fleas on a dog. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of makes sense, I Yeah. Do you happen to have any theories where you think these aliens may be from? Ah. Uh, that's a million dollar question. Yeah, good question. Uh, my guess, I mean, I'm, my assessment, let me put it that way, is that they are biological beings like us, just different. So they are, they've got craft that appear on radar, they've been photographed, filmed, uh, they leave landing traces, sometimes involving radiation uh, readings that are far above normal. Uh, we've got metal fragment cases, we've got enough evidence prove that they're here. I mean, we've got implant removal evidence at this point. I think that 
these guys are from other planets, other star systems. And as far as getting first-hand information of like where they actually come from, well, some experiencers um, have reported that they, ETs have told them that they come from places like uh, Zeta Reticula. Uh, it's the Betty and Barney Hill case was the first to sort of break that uh, news, but that's turned up in several other cases. Uh, but Orion, the name Cygnus, uh, Andromeda, that's another whole galaxy, so I'm not sure how useful that information is, but usually ETs are very tight-lipped, very coy about where, where they come from. If people ask, they'll say something like, it's not important, or you wouldn't understand, or we come from a place you don't know about yet, or something along those lines. They might be right. Huh. So, so they just don't really know. To we, be perfectly honest, we don't know where they're coming from. Well, I heard of a lot of eyewitness accounts of saucers coming from out of the water, like the oceans. Yes, yes. I've, I got cases like that from the very beginning. Um, we live Where I live, it's right off, right near the Southern California coast, and uh, turns out this stretch of water sort of off Southern California, right off LA, really, the Santa Catalina Channel, uh, the stretch of water between Catalina Island and mainland, uh, has an enormous amount of what I would call USO activity, unidentified submersible objects. And these objects are seen diving into the water, they're seen coming out, sometimes both, uh, floating on the surface, but often underneath. Uh, people up and down the coastline and all over Catalina Island and Rancho Palos Verdes, the peninsula there, uh, have all seen this activity. It's very well known locally. And it's been going on for about a hundred years. Uh, good high quality case pretty much every year since 1947. But do you believe that there may be uh, civilizations that have lived here for thousands of years in the oceans, under the Antarctic, in the deserts and so on, under the ground? other than just being from outer space, that they may have had reinforcements down here uh, long before man even walked, well, long before man was able to not climb trees anymore, started walking on two legs. Yeah, I think that um, does make sense. There are well, some cases off the coast here involving hundreds of objects coming out of the water. So where are they all coming from? If there's not a base down there, there's a parking lot of these things. And yeah, they have been here for millennia. We know that based on uh, hieroglyphs mm -hmm. in the Egyptian culture and uh, petroglyphs from Native Americans, uh, Middle Age uh, paintings, Renaissance paintings. I mean, you can go up and down the line. Each culture uh, has quite a bit of information about this, stretching back not hundreds of years, thousands in some cases. So yeah, I'm pretty much convinced that these guys have been around for a very long time, uh, and we're just now becoming aware of it. I think if they wanted to attack us, they would get us. Exactly, yeah. I think that's one of the best arguments we have, mm -hmm. for that these guys are not hostile, <clears throat> because we know their technology outperforms ours pretty much every level. Mm -hmm. Uh, their vehicles can turn invisible. Uh, this has been verified by the military. They know this. Uh, there's cases from Blue Book, uh, Project Blue Book, that show this, where objects have appeared on radar but were not visible. They came swooping down over, like, Colorado Springs, air, air base. Um, that happened twice. So they can turn at right angles. They can shoot across the sky at many thousands of miles per hour, or apparently... Uh, you know, faster than light. Uh, hard to say, uh, but they are definitely far, far more advanced technologically. The people I interview, that's really the only thing all witnesses agree upon. Whoever these guys are, they're very, very advanced. Uh, I'm a I don't think they're going to take over. They could have if they wanted to uh, anytime. So. I'm asking a big question. What do you think about disclosure in June? I'm skeptical. Uh, I, I've been in this field a long time. There's always been, you know, rumors that disclosure is 
is on the horizon. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, lately, this past couple of years, with the Pentagon saying that they have, quote, material from otherworldly vehicles, that's a direct quote coming from the P Pentagon. That should be huge front-page news. It sort of just slid under the radar there. Yeah. But, yeah, so that was... Maybe, maybe some, we will get some real disclosure. I know there are more and more documents being poured into the public arena. Um, not a lot of them are what I would call explosive or, you know, change, changing, uh, world-changing, paradigm-changing. Yeah. But we'll see. Uh, I think disclosure is something that will happen. Uh -huh. We do see more and more government officials of very high rank uh, saying that this is real. We have senators. We have representatives, we have governors, uh, presidents for that matter, have said that this is real. President Carter, he saw a UFO in Georgia, uh, and uh, Reagan, too. So, I don't know if it's going to be the U.S. that leads the disclosure, or another country, uh, but at some point, this cannot be held back. I think our governments across the world and the military are neck deep in this subject. They are deeply, deeply involved. It's taken very seriously at very high levels. They know it's real. If Roswell is real, I think it is. Oh, it and is. Roswell's yeah. real. But, yeah, we have the craft and the bodies. Uh, and it's not just Roswell. I mean, there's Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. That was a pretty famous case. Yeah, Stan uh, Gordon, I know him real well. Yeah, so I'm just saying with it not just one or two cases of UFO crash retrievals, it's hundreds if you look into it. I'll tell you a so secret, I'm, my uncle was involved with the Roswell crash. It's not a secret anymore. At some point, that Roswell, we're going to see it in museums, mark my words, <laughs> we will. <laughs> it really <laughs> happened. <laughs> it really happened. And I think when they do disclosure, Roswell's going to be part of disclosure. Because Roswell's well known. And exactly. I personally don't think people take it as hard when they talk about Roswell, do you? Right. No, I agree, yeah. Yeah. I think that's what's going to go down. Uh, the biggest mistake was the 24 hours before they acknowledged it didn't happen. So that kind of messed them up. I was curious, what is the most rewarding part of doing what you do? Oh, I would say it's um, helping people out. Uh, my first uh, sort of goal when someone contacts me is to help them. And people contact me fairly often, and they're at the end of the rope. They need the information, but um, it's not unusual for people to you know, start crying as they uh, talk about what's happened to them. Uh, because they haven't been able to find someone to talk to who takes it seriously. So that to me is the most rewarding part, knowing that I've helped people. Uh, I'm not certainly not in this for the money or the fame. Uh, I did I write these books because finding out UFOs was for me a very <clears throat> traumatic experience. And I, I don't want anyone else to have to go through that. I think it's a very important subject. I don't think the UFOs are gonna go away. I think we're going to see open official contact, in fact, at some point. And I think disclosure will happen. This subject has potentially changed the world and is. I mean, we could solve the energy crisis, the economic crisis, the environmental crisis. If we just let this technology that we have in our possession out for the public use. So, yeah, that, I think that this is important work that uh, all UFO researchers are doing all paranormal researchers, shows like yours, uh, people need to know this stuff. Hmm. Preston, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, sure, I appreciate that. Yeah, I do have a website, you just Google my name, it should take you there. The actual address is PrestonEmmett.Weebly.com. got all my books there, excerpts, and uh, you can contact me through my website. If you've got a question, a comment, or a story to share, my books are available on Amazon and other online retailers or bookstores. And, uh, yeah, I do have more books coming up. I've got another book coming out about people's very close encounters, 25 true 
UFO encounters and uh, putting out another volume of the Not From Here series about the more unusual sort of outlying type of cases. Right now you only have, you have volume one and two, right, of uh, Not From Here? I was able to find those on Amazon. And other. Yeah, volume three as well. Yep. Volume three too? Oh, okay. Those are all on your homepage of the Weebly site. Definitely excerpts right. on all of them. This has been a, a really fun experience. Yeah, Preston, thank you so much. We had a blast talking to you. Thank you for joining us this episode. If you would like to attend our monthly meetings, you may do so by visiting the Lower Paxton Municipal Building in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We meet the second Wednesday of every month between the hours of 7 and 9 p.m. Please visit our Facebook page, that is Paranormal Search of Pennsylvania. There you will find links to our YouTube channel and website.